let's get scratching. We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up. Sega games, just keep playing them. We're back. It's the Sega Bit Swing Report Show. Live. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to the Segabit Swing and Report Show. We are back. I think this is my first episode in the new space. Uh, I don't have a name for it yet. I don't even think the last space had a name. I think it was called My Basement. Um, but we are here in my basement, and we are actually joined by uh, someone who's going to be talking about a Chicago behemoth. So it's fitting in that opening intro that we always have where we show the Chicago skyline, um, because we are going to be talking about Williams Bally Midway, and we're going to be talking to Ken Horowitz, the author of From Pinballs to Pixels. So let's bring him on right now. Hello, Ken. How are you? Hello. Hello. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So this is our 100-and-somethieth episode. You know, I, I stopped counting, but I know for sure you are our most prolific guest. Um, and the reason for that is is you are always writing books. I've got one here. It's the Sega Arcade Revolution. It is playing at the next level, a history of American Sega games. And then we also, of course, have the uh, website... Sega16.com, which I'm putting on the screen here, um, which had a redesign recently. This looks very different. Yeah, yeah. We uh, moved to a different server, separated from the forum. Still causing some issues with the forum that it hasn't been easy to work out. Um, so, but we're. That's coming. It's coming. But the website yeah. has been completely revamped, updated, and uh, yeah, we're not. Not unfortunately, not able to update as much as we used to, but um, twice a month, new articles, yeah. uh, interviews, translated interviews that uh, from Spanish, French, Japanese. So yeah, still, still stuff coming. Not as much as before, but still coming. Well, you know, I mean, something's better than nothing. And also, you're glossing over the fact that there are what, what, like close to fifteen, twenty years worth of articles and reviews on this site, like. Uh, how long years. has... 18? 19. 19. 19. Wow. So we're coming up on the 20th anniversary. That's wild. Um, mm. But I, I remember full well, uh, probably like over, over 15 years ago then, that I would be, you know, like looking at a video game. And I'm like, is this worth getting? And then I'd check Sega 16's review and it would be like, this game is garbage. Do not buy it. You know, and I'd be like, yes, sir. Um, and that's from a, uh, not just you, but, uh, contributing writers, a team of writers. Um, but speaking about your writing, so you outside of Sega 16, um, are quite prolific. You have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, four books out at the moment, at least yep. through McFarland Press. Yeah. Four, four published books thus far. Okay. Yeah. And the one that I, I glossed over, and it's not because I, I, I'm the Sega fan that's trying to, you know, ignore it, but uh, it's a Nintendo, it's and, Nintendo book. <laughs> exactly. It's a Nintendo and uh, Donkey Kong. Um, Donkey Kong plays a part of it, but that's definitely one yeah. of the, the heroes of the book, correct? 
Yeah, I, yeah. Beyond Don- Donkey Kong is uh, it's the history of Nintendo's arcade business. Um, Donkey Kong actually has some it, uh, the story behind that's actually uh, had a, a kind of a breakthrough recently. Uh, Gaming Alexandria, which is a history that dedicate uh, the website that dedicates itself to the history and preservation of video games, uh, managed to fund the translation that is hopefully is going to be published on Schmucklations. Uh, with one of the, you know how Donkey Kong was farmed out by Nintendo, the, the development to uh, another company. And um, and I knew the name, and uh, my mouth and my brain kind of don't want to connect, <laughs> because I'm afraid I might mistrans- mispronounce it. Kigami uh, Toshinki, uh, I think, is, is, is my Japanese pronunciation is horrible. But um, they programmed it, and that they when Do- Nintendo did Donkey Kong Jr., they used the code without permission, caused a lawsuit that ran for years and years and years. And so one of the former uh, employees at that company had, uh, in 1997 told his version of the, from inside the company of what happened. And so Gaming Alexandria was able to uh, secure funding today to uh, have that interview. So I think it's 11 pages long. Uh, translated, so we're going to get a, uh, more insight onto the the goings on in, in the development of Donkey Kong. Wow! But yeah, that that That's book wild. is also it. It's um, it was the hardest of the four books for me to write. It's also the shortest, but that's because compared to Williams, compared to Sega, Nintendo's arcade history just wasn't that long. So um, it wasn't that I didn't like Nintendo as much. The reason I wrote the book is because I love Nintendo. I love mm-hmm. Nintendo's arcade games. They just they weren't in the in the market as long as other companies were, so there just wasn't as much content there. But um, but yeah, but um, it was it was hard to write, but it was fun to write, and I was very happy to be able to tell that story. And you know, speaking of companies with long histories, of course, the subject for tonight, Williams Bally Midway, that's a mouthful, and that tells you that's a company with a lot of history when they keep tacking on names. Um, mm-hmm. And they got their start uh, well before video games. It was back when, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Electromechanical, is this even before Electromechanical? Were they in existence? Because I, I know there are games that functioned without yeah. electronics even. Yeah, this is back in the 1940s when Harry Williams founds the company. And um, he actually wasn't with the company um as long as you would think, you know, he retired and then he came back and sold Mark, uh, the company, uh, part of the company to Sam Stern, mm-hmm. who, uh, whose son Gary Stern is still making pinballs, been in the pinball industry forever. Uh, he's a legend in the pinball industry. And, um, but Williams as a company, yeah, was around. They're actually still around. It's not Williams anymore. It's WMS and they make, uh, these um, what do you call them? These uh, slot machines, digital slot machines, mm-hmm. and the, so this that 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 organization as a as a company in the coin out business is still around. It's just not in any way, shape, or form the way it used to be. But um, and and some people who work there, uh, like Larry Demar, who's the helped he was in the part, worked with uh, Eugene Jarvis to des- design a Stargate. And, and other games, and he was involved with the Pinball Machine, uh, uh, Adam's Family, and, and Twilight Zone. Um, he's his company. He has a company. Once Williams shut down in October of 1999, 
he and some other employees from Williams actually formed their own company that that uh, makes these slot machines for WMS and other companies. So they're you know most of the people who were there, like Dave Sullivan and Brian Eddy and George Gomez, still make pinball at Stern or Jumping Jack or other companies. But uh, it, it was it's you know it's sad to see that one of what was perhaps the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, names in pinball and right. an American coin up video game coin up uh, is no longer around. But it's like Sega, right? Sega is still around, but it's not the same Sega that we grew up with. Well, no, there, there's it's, Sega DNA. They actually do blood transfusions, so there's there's always <laughs> that <laughs> that that original Sega blood running through every staff member. But um, yeah. All of those pinball companies, all of all of those companies of that era, there was a lot of interconnectedness over the years. Um, so, two things I wanted to start off with. First off, uh, pinball itself it it had a very interesting beginnings. The name itself, pinball, uh, from what I read in the book, refers to actual pins in the board. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, the, like the first were were just boards that you held up and and a ball, dropped the ball and it bounced off these pins and fell into these holes. And, um, and then a big breakthrough was they added a plunger, right? And then they went from being vertical to being horizontal. They became smaller. And um, over the years, they added flippers. Some had many flippers. Then they got reduced to two flippers. And then they added top uh, targets, standing targets and drop targets. And drop targets are the ones that... When you hit, they go down, and when you hit them all, you know, like they'll all go down, you get a bonus, and they come back up, things like that, bumpers. And so pinball what is, is a game that the basic, I would say that the basic design of what makes a pinball machine hasn't really changed since like the 19, mid, late 1940s, early 1950s or so, but they've just added. You would think that a, a, a game that's just a slanted board where you just bounce a ball around, there's not really much you can do with that. And if you look right. over the history, they've just kept finding ways to innovate and keep the experience fresh, you know, and interesting. And it's just amazing. You know, it takes an incredible level of ingenuity and creativity to just keep creating or adding things to, to reinvigorate that, that product, because you would think that, okay, after after just so long, there's after so you know a certain amount of time, there's just so much that you can do with it. But that's not so. Pinball has continued to evolve, continued to endure, and um, it's you know I mean at its height there were about a half dozen comp- American companies making pinball. Today there are about a half dozen company American companies making pinball. <laughs> you know the focus of the market has changed from right. uh, selling the machines to locations and arcades to selling directly to collectors and people. You know, to have to own. It's not you go to a place and plays. You buy the machine to have it for yourself. But um, the fact that pinball still survives. I mean, it's a it's a one of the real American industries. You know, um, it came out of Chicago, and it's just it's nice to see that they've continued to keep it alive. And it's amazing when you think about it, look over the history, just how they were able to just keep it fresh and keep it going um, and prevent it from becoming stale. Oh, absolutely. And you brought up when they added the flippers. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of similar to how you would compare uh, uh, European football and American football, where it all kind of stems from the same type of game, 
but there are descriptors like uh, American football is gridiron football. Um, mm. And so in the case of pinball, it's really the, the full name is, what is it? Flipper pinball. Is that, is that accurate? Like pin pinball as a term is a much more blanket term, but it really has become owned by what we now see it as. Yeah. Well, definitely in the U S when you think of pinball, you think of the game that we know. Right. You know, um, I guess technically, you know, any game that has a pin and is involved with a ball would fit that category. But when you say pinball, you, know, right. you think uh, of the, the Williams, the Bally, the Gottlieb, Chicago Coin, those types of uh, those companies, Stern. Um, yeah, that's which that's the that um, is the the definition that encompasses the word, at least in the United States. There may be you know, and other parts like Europe, Spain, um, but there are France, but there are other. Uh, Parts of the world, perhaps, where where you know there is a, a variation of that definition, but at least in the United States and parts of Europe, when you say pinball, that's what you're referring to. For sure, yeah. I, I brought it up just because I saw a funny argument on Reddit not too long ago where it was someone said, "Well, pachinko is pinball," and people were like, "Well, it is. No, it's not, but it could be." I, I would, <laughs> I would personally, I would categorize that as like a pin game, mm. you know, but not pinball. It, it's it's the same type of, of situation like you know back in the in the ni- 80s and the 90s you had shooters right which were uh video games where you piloted a ship either horizontally or side scrolling and you battle other ships and then fought bosses and then you had uh games like doom and others come out and today if i talk to people in their 20s or so and i say shooters they're thinking call of duty Fortnite, right and so it's like oh those are first person shooters you know and, and then there are space shooters or shmups or uh you know, and so it's technically, I guess, any game where you shoot something is a shooter. But what do most people think of? You know, when you say shooter, and the thing is, you have people that think it's a, a, a first-person shooting game like Call of Duty. You know, there's the thing. To me, when you say shooter, I'm thinking Thunder Force. You know, I'm thinking uh, uh, Gradius. Mm. You know, that when you say shooter, but but so like I would classify like Pachinko's as a pin game. But when you say pinball, you know, that's pachinko is not something that I would uh, put in under that term. That's just me. All right. Well, that settles that. Um, And then as far as Chicago, like why Chicago? Was there one person or one company that really started it all? Like my guess is before you answer and maybe I'm wrong is because it was such a central location with a, a very easy way to distribute to both coasts that's my yeah, guess. And Chicago was very big in, in, in co-op you had Bally manufacturing and other companies that uh, you know amusement had been around you know you had uh, gumball machines and, and cigarette machines and other things so point up point up the point up business and amusement had been around um, and Chicago is is has been and still is today you know the center of uh, American coin up. Um, it's interesting when you see like Stern and other companies, they move, they don't move that far from, from you know, they don't move to the opposite side of the country. They may move right. from one part of Chicago to another part of Chicago. Right? But um, yeah, Chicago has always been a mecca for, for uh, coin up, uh, the coin up industry in the United States and still is today. Now, I think tell me that then... the pinball just became another product and then became mm-hmm. a dominant product. Right, right. And so tell me then, 
Uh, as far as the subject of your book with Williams Bally Midway, um, what is what is the way that that whole business started? Obviously, someone last name Williams, and you were talking about him. But for someone who's never read the book, uh, someone who's never really known the history of him, how would you uh, describe the beginnings of Williams? Yeah. Well, Williams was founded by Harry Williams and. Harry Williams, uh, Pinball, Williams wasn't the first company uh, to get into pinball. Pinball was already big in the 1930s, um, banned in New York and other places. And so Harry Williams, um, he's looking for a way, you know, he's looking, he wants to make money. He wants to get into something that he can become successful. And he sees that these machines, you know, people play them and people pay to play them. And so he has a very rough start getting into it. He has a very, uh, uh, very troublesome start. Um, he starts with a game, Highlight, doesn't make the kind of money. He was conned practically by the salesman uh, right. into, um, you know, you, you make a lot of money with this and he doesn't make the money he needs. He's very, very uh, frustrated. And, um, and also the thing was, is that you have these locations where he goes and he puts his game in a location and if someone got there first, you know, your your machine's gone. So he has to find places where he doesn't have, where someone that no one has already taken. He has to share profits with the, like if he puts it in a pharmacy, he has to share profits with the farm, with the pharmacy owner, you know? So it was, it was like the like the video game industry in the 1970s where, you know, there were no really solid rules, you know, and you had to basically do, uh, do the best you can with what you have, you know, Mm -hmm. what's available. And Harry Williams was, uh, he was very, very astute and very, he recognized, you know, what people wanted and, and how to give them that. And so, uh, he builds his business little by little and um, he's able to to uh, take machines that uh, that people that that they're traded in or, or that are are, are um, people don't want to play anymore. And he starts out by uh, refurbishing them and redesigning them and making like another game out of the same same table and and selling those. And then he starts designing tables and making money off that and the business grows from there. Um, so he's, uh, uh, he, he builds his business, you know, merges it in 1935. And, um, by the 1940s, he's sells part of it to Sam Stern. And then he like retires for a bit. Sam Stern lures him back. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, he was not. He was living in California instead of Chicago, and he would send his designs in. Um, very prolific designer. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of his designs they were never made into tables because he just. I mean, I think it was at the time Williams Close, Steve Cordick, who was the, the the guy in charge of pinball there, had they they managed to save some. I think Duncan Brown and, and Duncan Brown was. And and Cordic were and Demar were able to save some, you know, a couple of dozen designs 
mm-hmm. that well had never been actually never been seen before. And so um, Harry Williams just wasn't wasn't just a great businessman; uh, he was also a great pinball designer. But a lot of the guys, you know, I mean, this is like think back to like when video games started, the industry started in the nineteen seventies, and you had guys making games for the Atari twenty six hundred or something. How big was the development team? One guy, right? Um, right. Steve Kordek designed an immense amount of machines o- over his career. But back then, you know, it was basically one guy. And now if you look like a pinball uh, team, you have the designer, you have the software programmer, you have the mechanical guy, you have the sound designer, you know, you have a whole group of people making pinball machines today. But back in the 1940s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, it was one person who would design the table and put it together and, you know, and maybe uh, uh, the, the department, you know, the company would, would actually you know, manufacture the parts but most of the work was done by one person or one or two people. And so the fact that, that Harry was able to develop these games, design them, you know, uh, as he built up his business, is, uh, it's, a, it's a testament to his talent. You know? Because right. a lot and of the other guys, like the ones who ran Bally and Gottlieb, and they weren't necessarily pinball designers. You know, they had designers and they, they were good at running their companies, but they weren't as hands-on. You know, I think Harry Williams stands out among the, the great pinball houses of that era for that reason, that he was uh, a very, very hands-on designer as well as... Uh, he wasn't... And the thing is, he was a designer at heart. He wasn't really the business. You know, I think that's probably the reason why he wanted to sell it to Sam Stern because Sam Stern was right. a very good business. So he wanted to design. But but he, for up until that point, you know, he was able to get the company off the ground, make it successful, doing both things. And it's not easy to do both of those things at the same time. And it's interesting Especially because... In an industry like that. He, he retires, and this is like in the first few chapters of your book. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the man who started the company, and he's already kind of, I'm done, I'm on my way out now. And, and you know, you look at the, the, the chapters here, and you haven't even gotten to some of the featured games yet. Um, there are games definitely that are brought up, but, uh, you know, to be quite honest, a lot of the games back then, they didn't have, and by back then, I mean like the, the 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s, Maybe forties mostly. They they didn't really have a lot of narrative there or characters. They're more yeah, like yeah, fun yeah. zippy names. Yeah, uh, it's, it's as pinball evolves and you get designers like Steve Ritchie with games like High Speed that mm-hmm. they actually are able to like start putting a story. You know, um, and and, th- and that's the thing. That's that's to me what I find so fascinating about pinball is that. You see that evolution. You go back and you play games from the fifties and sixties, and it's right. you know uh, making you know getting the high score, getting points. It's always been about that, but the the way you approach that is so different with those early games compared to the games of the uh, of the eighties and the nineties, you know, seventies, eighties, and nineties. Uh, because as the technology advanced, they were able to incorporate new elements and make the games more complex. And so, um, yeah, you didn't you didn't have a focus. You had a theme. Mm-hmm. You built the game around the theme, and that was it. So, but then you have games like you know, like uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, by by uh, uh, John Papadou, that 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 has a very very cool narrative, you know, and fight the genie and things. Uh, but that's you know much later on. So so early on, yeah, the the the, the games weren't as as deep in narrative and uh, as as they could have been. But that's because you know. The technology wasn't there, and also because at the beginnings of that industry, that probably wasn't you know necessary. You didn't really need that. 
I don't think that they were pushing for that uh, uh, because that wasn't um, something that um, wasn't vital. As the technology improved and became more available, and they said, "Hey, you know, now we can do this. Now we can do that." You know, that gave them the the, the incentive to push the envelope more. But early on, I don't think there was really a need to make the game so deep in narrative. So what 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 was that need? What was the transition from these more, uh, uh, I guess now kind of mundane, just kind of like fun, happy titles with no real character or story to these games having like, like let's talk about let's jump ahead to Gorgar, um, mm-hmm. like that's that's a bizarre game, <laughs> but it's an important one too. <laughs> um, and like, how would something like that come about? after so many years of games just, I think, being wildly successful without having to rely on, on I, I guess, gimmicks like that? Well, the, the thing about... Uh, I, I think it was... The thing about that, I think it was that when you have the rise of video games, now you have a medium that's going to be able to provide visual stimulation, more control... And so you have pinball, which has been around for decades. By the time you know the seventies had around, uh, uh, come around, by the time Space Invaders and Asteroids come, so video games are much more immersive at that time. They're new, they're shiny, they're video, right? Pinball mm-hmm. might you know you've got to do something with it so it doesn't look like yesterday's thing. And so the rise of solid state technology in the mid nineteen seventies, which Williams was very very heavily into under Michael Stroll, uh, who was president at the time. He was president when Williams entered video games, you know, the Fender, Stargate, Robotron, that era, uh, Black Knight, and Gorgar mm-hmm. and Pinball. You know, he saw, they saw that they had to compete with video, you know. And it to the point where you went from competing to video to, hey, let's make video games as well. Right. You know, because uh, Defender comes out, you know, in, in the early 80s, right? The 70s, video games are around through the south, the 70s, and Williams is still in pinball. But as, as the, as, you know, if you look at Pong in 1972 and then you look at Space Invaders in 78, you know, we're talking what, s- six years? And you can see an evolution in design, in technology, you know? So video games are evolving very, very quickly. Pinball has to evolve just as quickly to stay relevant. You know, and so pinball. I remember back in the '80s, I would go into uh, Bally's Aladdin's Castle in Florida, and uh, there's a place that I used to go to in Florida called Circus Playhouse. And shout out to anyone from South Florida who remembers Circus Playhouse, mm-hmm. which was a Chuck E. It was a competition to Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza, and both of these places had two or three pinball machines, and they were way in the back. Yeah, everything was video. You know, in the in the early '80s, and I think back to all the pizza pizzerias I went to, laundromats, things like that. They had no pinball machines in the early '80s. It was all video, you know. So these were places that used to be dominated by pinball street locations. So what do you do? You know, you have to push that technology to compete with video. And again, we're talking about a fi- with a video game. I can make one video game where you're a shiny uh, yellow dot, a uh, yellow circle that goes around eating dots and. I can have music and all kinds of things. And then I can make another one where you're a spaceship and another one where you're a guy with a gun. I can basically do anything I want in terms of concept and narrative. Pinball, no matter what I decide to do, I'm still confined to the play field, flippers, and the ball. Right. You know, 
still have physical, there's a physical play field that I have to deal with. I can't do any, there's no virtual space. So I have to, you know, I, as, as, as I can try and, and as much as I can, as much as I, as hard as I try and as, as much technology as, as advanced technology as I use, I'm still confined to that physical three-dimensional reality. Mm-hmm. And so that pushes Williams is like, okay, we've got to make video games as well. But the, the, the wonderful thing about Williams is that the success of Defender and Stargate and Robotron didn't make them turn around and say, oh, you know what? Who needs pinball? Let's just shut that down. They kept it going. Mm-hmm. You know, even when it looked like in the mid in early 1980s, around the time of the crash, 83, that pinball was absolutely dead in the United States. They still tried to keep it going. They were successful, um, but uh, they never gave up on it, really, up until 99 when they decided to exit the business, mm-hmm. which I, in my book, I try to outline some potential reasons. Like I've, I've heard stories about why they left and what people think the reason they left. And, and some of it, you know, there's a, some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't make sense. I guess the only people who really know that honestly would be Nick DeCastro, Neil DeCastro and, and uh, the people around him of why they made that decision. But, but up until that point, you know, the pinball is an industry of, of peaks and valleys. And so up until that point, every time pinball had a valley, they kept it going until it picked up again. Right. And you saw that, that, that um, Williams left the pinball industry in October of 99, October 25th, 1999, when pinball was at its low, lowest. And then less than a decade later, what happened? Pinball picks up again. Look at pinball now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like pinball now, it's... Um there's like a handful of marquee games that get a lot of press. I remember the James Bond one was the big one. Um, and I actually, I got to play that. Uh, I think like the week it released, they had it at uh, a place um, in Schaumburg. Uh, they do a lot of testing, I think location testing up there. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, there's a lot, I mean, licensed games and heavy on the gimmicks seem to be the two very big things for modern pinball, um, people flip out when there's a new Elvira table. People flip out when yeah. it's like the Munsters, Adams Family, things that um, you know were kind of contemporaries to pinball at their at its peak. Like TV shows that were on premiering on TV when pinball was uh, <laughs> kind of really catching on are now here in 2023 becoming their own pinball games. So it's it's kind of wild. Um, but I, I don't want to derail the talk, but I did have a little show and tell. Um, I dug these out right before you came on. So my uncle, uh, he ran a pinball business for 25 years in Minnesota. Um, and I inherited a lot of his, uh, I have one machine. I have a, a Gottlieb Ace High from, I think, 57. Um, but I also have a ton of these print materials. So check these out. These are, uh, Pinball Collectors Quarterly from 1982, oh, wow. this is the premiere issue. Actually, this is the first four issues, um, and it, it's just wild to me that 82 and there's you know there's a, a magazine for specifically collectors of pinball machines. So here they are, uh, and it's clearly covering games that are much older, I believe, mm. than 1982, um, and these are just just wild to read through. Uh, I also have the uh, 1987 
entertainment equipment guide here <laughs> from the Carson City Parlor. Um, and I think, oh, what are these? These are these are cool. So this is a pin game journal. These are a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is the June 94 uh, number 30. So this was definitely a long running one. Um, yeah. I have quite a few of these, but notably in one of these, and I, I tried to figure out which issue it was before we went live, but I couldn't. They do talk about Sega um, entering the, the the pinball business or buying um, an existing company. So uh, before we get back to Williams Valley Midway, tell me about Sega's brief, brief uh, entry into the pinball business. Well, um, Sega was actually in pinball in the 70s. They were in pinball for a while, and then they got out, and then they Mm -hmm. came back in, right? Um, You had um, Stern Electronics, which made Berserk and Frenzy and a couple of other games during the early 80s in video games, and they go under, Mm. um, right? And then... um, you have companies like uh, Gottlieb that became Premier, right? And then what happens is that Sega enters the uh, the pinball market. It doesn't stay all that long, and then it's then the business is sold to uh, Gary Stern, who creates Stern Pinball, which is still around today. There's mm-hmm. a, a a line. It's not the same company. But there is a line that you can trace from Stern Electronics to Data East Pinball to Sega Pinball to Stern Pinball. You know, Gary Stern is there. You know, and Joe Kamikow is, is there in, in, in throughout the Data East and the Sega uh, years as well. But uh, Sega, you know, Sega is a coin-up company, so Sega has been in just about every aspect of coin-ups. But they were in pinball in the 1970s got out came back in got out again um, and and then um, they haven't been it's amazing that they have well I'm, I'm, it's not amazing but it, you know it's unfortunate I would think that they never got back into pinball again but pinball is not an industry for big companies like that now I don't think there's enough profit in it, in it for them but um, but Sega I mean I remember this is the 90s, right, during the Genesis years, Sega CD and Sega Saturn. And Sega is making pinball games. I worked at a time out during this time. And the time store I worked at, none of the stores in the area, there were in, in my area within a 40-minute ride of each other, you had... Um, you had one, two, three, four four, five timeout arcades. None of them had Sega pinball machines. Mm. So I don't know. That could just be, I mean, I live in Puerto Rico, so that could just be that they didn't have uh, a, a distribu- distribution deal here. But Williams did, Bally did, you know, um, you know, um, during the 80s, cause I remember in Puerto Rico seeing Bally machines, Gottlieb machines. Um, so I, I Data East machines here. But I didn't see Sega, a lot of Sega mm-hmm. machines, and I always wondered why that was. So I don't know if maybe it's that they didn't have the reach that uh, that they that they want that they needed to stay in the industry, 
or right. that they just weren't. Um, it just wasn't their 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 focus. Also, you got to remember the 1990 Sega's was kind of stretched pretty thin. Oh, so absolutely. I guess they, uh, so they decided to kind of trim the fat there, and it, that doesn't surprise me that Pinball would not stay. Uh, you know, I'm just you know. Uh, giving ideas here because I haven't really examined the, the, that's a, it's a topic that I've been researching yeah. very, very slowly, very little because I, I was planning even considering, uh, doing a book on that, but, uh, there isn't, I don't, I don't know if there's enough there, uh, for an entire book, definitely enough for a couple of chapters, right. but I, I kind of view Sega's, uh, pinball, uh, uh, unless, you know, yeah, well, it has to be the complete history with the, the, the two runs in pinball. I don't know uh, yet. I have, like I said, I, I've just kind of done a cursory look at the right. research uh, at there. So I'm not very uh, in, I'm not very knowledgeable in depth about uh, their runs, but, but I do know that you know, they, they were in pinball in the seventies, got out, came back in, but neither run was very long. And right. Uh, and as we're speaking, I actually am showing uh, a flyer for Sega winner, I believe it was their first pinball machine. It has a woman riding a carousel as though she's a jockey and she's holding a trophy. Um, What's the year? It's 19, uh, 1973, I want to say. Uh, it's on the Sega Retro Wiki, which, or 1972, which I should plug, is the uh, official, unofficial wiki of Sega Bits. So, um, yeah, but Winner is Sega's first pinball table manufactured in 1972. And this was when Sega, um, they had their, uh, they had their logo was still that kind of uh, uh, castle kind of themed. Like it's not the logo we know it as today. Uh-huh. Um, and I honestly, I think Sega just at that time didn't have the the uh, the name recognition, or at least the when people would say Sega back then. I don't know what came into their heads. Maybe they just thought of Sega as that coin-op company that they occasionally see. Um, nothing really jumps out at them. Kind of, For me, Gottlieb is kind of like that. When I say Gottlieb, I know they make pinball, but I don't know... Um, I, I don't think of any franchise connected to them. Like with Sega, I'm like, well, I can name three dozen franchises off the top of my head, but a long-winded comment I'm making, I guess, is that in the seventies, it just it didn't j- jump out at anyone, perhaps. And in uh-huh. the nineties, when they came back, again, I, I don't, I didn't really feel that Sega presence. It still felt like a company they bought that was doing either their own thing or completing contracts. I played uh, uh, Sega's X Files machine, which was fantastic, but it didn't scream Sega to me. It screamed licensed pinball machine from another company that just happened to have Sega. Um, what was yeah. There a reason that the Sega pinball games of the '90s never really did any cross promotion. There was no uh, Virtua Fighter machine. There was no Sonic machine. Why is that? That's a good question. Um, I I I would have to to if I were to venture a guess, I would have to say that the same reason why. Well, you had a lot of you did have interaction between Sega Enterprises USA and Sega. Uh, you know, it's like Sega of America, for example. But right. um, probably because by the time, you know, Sega's in the pinball industry in the 90s, pinball's in decline. 
And so uh, pinball year after year, you know, is, is uh, not as the nineties progressed, you know, towards the end of the decade, pinball's not, doesn't look to be a very profitable industry going forward. So I think they, it wasn't really worth it to them, you know, to, uh, to invest that kind of um, R and D and that kind of uh, um, effort into making pinballs, you know, making machines in an industry that seems to be on its way out. Like I'm looking here at the uh, pinball internet, internet pinball database, you know, the first run, they were in pinball for eight years from 71 to 79, you know, Uh, but in, 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 if we look at their second run, right from 94 to 99, five years. So they got into pinball right when pinball starting to take a a slide. Hmm. So uh, I think that's the reason why you probably and again this coincides, you know, with Sega's financial problems. So if you're, you know, you got financial problems, it doesn't really make sense for you to go and uh, put a lot of money into a market that's uh, seems to be on the down, you know, on the downtrend. Right. So right. Um, and, but they did have you, some good. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, uh, licenses. You know, GoldenEye. Independence oh, yeah. Day, Star Wars Trilogy Special Edition, Lost World Jurassic Park, Starship Troopers, X-Files, Godzilla, South Park. I mean, they had some some uh, some really good ones. But you look at the production runs, right? I think Mally Shelley's Frankenstein, 3,000 units. You know, uh, Batman Forever, 2,500 units, which are not bad numbers, you know. But uh, this is not, you know. And then where they're going against, you know, Williams... They're going against, uh, uh, you know, company a company that's pretty much king of that industry. So it's not, um, it wasn't wasn't meant to be at that time. I think there was just so many different factors working against it that Sega, you know, tried it, didn't work out. Doesn't look like this industry is going to be too profitable going forward, and they pull out, and then uh, you know, Gary Stern sticks it out, and Gary Stern is different because Gary Stern is a pinball guy. He comes from a pinball family, right? I mean, uh, and so he has every reason to see pinball through, you know, to, to wait for it to, to pick up again, which it does, you know. But Sega, given its financial situation in the mid-90s, given the state of the market, pinball market in the 19, mid-1990s, there really is no incentive for them to invest money into making uh, machines. I would have loved to have seen a Virtua Fighter, you know, uh, pinball machine or mm. Sonic the Hedgehog pinball machine Gottlieb uh did a super mario one you know would have loved to have seen a a, a sonic the hedgehog one you know i mean like uh imagine something like sonic spinball but done on an actual pinball machine right that would have yeah been awesome and you, you know? could but integrate just... the the video screen up there actually have pixel yeah. sonic yeah. play a part of the game which they did do uh pac-man did they had and and a few others there were games that integrated both pinball and the video monitor. Uh, did Williams do a lot of that at the time? I know they had the uh, the two color. Um, what was that? L- LCD or LED? LCD. LCD. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, those those screens were those were really really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it got to the point where you had you just you had to incorporate that big games uh, that they had like Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, Mark Ritchie's Fish Fish Tales, uh, really put those. Uh, the, the screens to to use by actually having video modes that you could play 
you know, using the flipper buttons to shoot and things like that. So, um, yeah, they absolutely could have incorporated that LCD screen into, um, you know, a Sonic game or something. But like I said, you know, just Sega's own financial state at the time, plus the state of the market, it was just something that wasn't feasible for them. Right, right. Um, let's get back to Williams Valley Midway. Let's talk about Bally. So what part, what, what is, what is the origin of Bally? Uh, what part did they play in the history of the company? Well, Bally Manufacturing was a company that was established and had been around for the longest time. Um, they were also, you know, really big licensor in video games, right? Uh, Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man. If, if, you look at those games, right? In the corner, it says a Bally Midway game, mm-hmm. right? Bally, I believe, purchases Midway in 1969, I think it is, and becomes Bally Midway, and they license lots of games. Remember that in the early 80s, a lot of Japanese companies didn't have offices in the United States. They didn't have the means to distribute in the United States. So what do you do? You license your game to an American company and let them distribute, manufacture and distribute. And Bally was big on that. Right. Um, and that's why, like, for the longest time, when I when, when I remember the very first time I saw a Namco, uh, I don't remember if it was a Namco collection or what it was that had Pac-Man. I was like, what's Nam? What's Pac-Man doing there? That's a Bally game. And then that's when I found out that, no, Bally just distributed the U.S. Right. It was designed by Namco. Because when you're, you know, when you're a kid, I grew up thinking Frogger was a Sega game. Exactly. Right? <laughs> because you, what do you know about licensing when you're nine, ten years old? You don't know anything. Right. You see the logo Sega and you see the game. Okay, that, that's the company that made it. You don't know that they just licensed it to release it in the United States. They didn't actually design it. It was made in Japan maybe a year or two before. Right. So, um, so what happens is is that Bally, you know, um, becomes Bally's another company that stretches itself too thin. Right. Six Flags. They own Six Flags. They had uh, fitness centers. I remember in the '80s, my mom used to go to those fitness centers and I used to, and it was in a strip mall that had an arcade. And she, when she made me, cause I was 12 years old, 13 years old, she would not let me stay home alone. She made me go with her when she used to go do aerobics, you know, with the leg warmers, really eighties. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm not going to go in, in the, in the, uh, the Bally fitness center because I'm, I'm not going to sit there in the daycare center with the little kids. You know, <laughs> I'll go, I'll be in the arcade. You know, you'll be there from like seven to eight. Okay. I'll be in the arcade. I used to go to the arcade. Uh, but so they were very stretched fi- in financial uh, problems. And so in 1988, they sell their pinball and video game business to Williams. Um, an interesting story in the book is the story of Arch Rivals, the video game designed by Brian Collin, who did Rampage and Xenophobia. Yeah. Um, that game actually made mo- enough money to pay for the Bally purchase by Williams itself. Wow. Bally, Williams made back the money it spent buying Bally Midway off the profits from Arch Rivals, which, you know, Colin uh, says that, you know, if they had just waited a couple of months until after Arch Rivals was released, they never would have had to sell the company. Right. And so Williams gets not just uh, the, 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 the licenses and all the products that Bally had done previously, but it also gets, you know, their teams. And the thing, the interesting thing is that the pinball teams from Bally Midway assimilated into the com- the, the company uh, a lot better than the video game guys did. Mm. One of the reasons why uh, Colin, uh, his group stayed uh, stayed around as long as it did is because they were able to work remotely. 
but um, the, the you know Bally uh, is absorbed into Williams, and they have these two lines, which are Bally lines and, and the Bally games, and the uh, Williams games. So it's really the only difference is the name on the on the machine, right? But the Bally guys did their stuff, and the Williams guys did their stuff, even though they worked for the same company. But they did seem to integrate uh, uh, better than the video game guys did. There were more of them, and they had some. I mean, uh, uh, they had some really good uh, developers that um, Jim Patla, you know, and uh, um, and others who were really, really good uh, designers. Who, um, yeah, Dennis Nordman, you know, um, who were Bally guys that came into Williams and uh, were still making pinball. Uh, well, Patla retired, but Nordman's still making. Pinball, Brian Eddy still making pinball to this day. Mm-hmm. These guys that came over from Bally, you know, um, continued to 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 work and and uh, produce hits even after they were uh, absorbed. Uh, even though they were only there for I don't know, eleven years before Williams got out of pinball, but uh, but the pinball uh, was the strength there. It's, it's you you look at what Williams did with the video game licenses. They didn't really do as much as you would think, but they had. I mean, in the early 1990s, when you have Mortal Kombat, you have Smash TV, you have NARC, you know, uh, you have NBA Jam, you know, you, you have uh, the, the, the mid, you know, they, they put the video game business into Midway, but you've got teams, you got Eugene Jarvis and others, you know, George Petro and others making these amazing Terminator 2, these are the T2, the arcade game, these great get video games, you know. Um, uh, but they, even though they did, Colin did revisit uh, Rampage. Mm-hmm. With the world tour, I think that was in nineteen was that ninety four or something. Yeah, yeah. They revisited that uh, around that time, but they didn't do a lot uh, with the licenses and video games. As you know, it wasn't as big a thing as the pinball was. Pinball is where it was at, right? And, and I think that's because even though Window Williams made all these, you know, with Midway they made all these great video games. The soul of that company was pinball. Always was people like the way Sega's the soul of Sega. People say, "Oh, Sega, you know, uh, was destroyed." Like, no, Sega's still around. Sega's still making games. Sega's doing now exactly what it did in 1980, in 1970. You know, it's making coin-op games. That's the soul of Sega is coin-op. Mm-hmm. Always has been. Always will be. You know, as long yeah. as there's a coin-op business, there will be a Sega making coin-op games. Yeah, and, and you know, Sega fans, fans will hate when I say this, but the uh, console business was just a small, small part of their history now. The fact that they have been in the third-party business longer than the console business now. It eclipsed a yeah. few years ago. Um, I actually did the math one time, and I'm like, oh. And I was like, I told my phone, I'm like, set a reminder for, and it was like two years into the future. And then one day it was like, bing, Sega's been in, <laughs> been in the... Like eight, eight- 18 years they were in the console business? Something like that, yeah, yeah. And it's been it w- 22 years since they left it? <laughs> exactly. It's just, it's it's wild when you think of it in, that, in those metrics. Um, and, you know, so you, you bring up uh, Midway there. They, for a lot of people, they are probably, if you were to, you know, uh, do a brief overview of this book, I think Midway would really stand out to a lot of modern gamers because yeah. of the Mortal Kombat connection. Um so tell me, how did how did Midway come into play? Was it an acquisition? Uh, what was the story well, it was there? Part of, it was part of Bally, because Bally had bought Midway. It was Bally Midway. And so when when they, Bally, uh, 
the company sold off its amusement, you know, point up. That was Valley Midway, all of them. Uh-huh. So Williams got all of that. Um, and so you, they have, you know, Eugene Jarvis leaves, goes back to California to do his master's degree, comes back. They reorganize the video game business. Because the thing was is that Williams was in pinball and video games in the 80s. You have the crash in the 80s. Williams kind of gets out of video games. I think in 83, they only released like three games, Turkey Shoot and a couple other games. Right, Space Shuttle, right, designed by Barry Ausler uh, and and uh, and Larry and Joe Kamenkow got the license. Barry Ausler did the playfield. You know, Steve, Eugene Jarvis was in California, but contributed to the sound remotely. So you have that. You have Larry Demar, Eugene Jarvis, Joe, uh, Joe Kamenkow, Barry Ausler, who's the guy who did Gorgar, the guy who did uh, a comment. I mean. He's an incredible. He was an incredible designer. He passed away recently. Um, you have a really great team. They do space shuttle, right? Uh, Mark Ritchie's working on Sorcerer. Sorcerer was the game that Williams is going to bring to the to the trade show, and that's what they're going to put their work on. Their their you know their their fate on. Uh, Joe Kamenkow supposedly goes into Michael Stroll's office, says that's not the game you want to bring. Bring space shuttle. They does it. Behind Mark Ritchie's back, and according hmm. to Kamakau himself, that that caused a rift, like a friction between him and Ritchie, because Ritchie didn't know. Um, Ritchie didn't have a problem with it. Um, uh, when I spoke to him and I asked him about that, he said, you know, he did what was best for the company. I don't know if that's, you know, just putting on a public face or whatever. But, but so they go with Space Shuttle. Space Shuttle is a huge hit, saves Pinball because it was like, if Pinball, if this game is successful, we stop making Pinball. Right. The game's successful, you know, and then video games start to pick up again in the 80s. When Jarvis comes back after he finishes master's degree, they will reorganize the video division with Jarvis in charge. And that's when you get NARC, you know, and you get Terminator 2 and, and NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat. And they were just on fire, you know, of that period. But they had, like I said, they had really, really good, uh, 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 like an all star team. You had uh, uh, Warren Davis, mm-hmm. creator of Qbert. You had uh, um, the creator of Joust. You know, I mean, you just had all these, this, all this massive talent there, and um, and then you had new guys, right? Like uh, Tramel, who made uh, NBA Jam. You know, so you have uh, um, just a real uh, dream team at Midway, and so you know, video games are the big thing, right? And mm-hmm. Video games because uh, they've come back. Video games have come back. Console video games. William gets its its uh, ends its deal with Acclaim, which did the home ports of its games, and they start making their own. Um, I think Mortal Kombat Three was the first game that had uh, that that carried the Williams logo, and it wasn't. Uh, it's after their deal with Acclaim had ended, which Acclaim did not like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and they do that. They switch to console because you know arcade is big is still big in the early 1990s, but you kind of see. And anyone who went to arcades in the 1990s, especially after the Saturn and PlayStation come out, you know, you see how quickly arcade games are coming to these consoles. They're being ported and how they're either as good in, or in some cases better, have more modes and things like that. And so, mm-hmm. you are you know, you look at it and you say, I remember I worked in Time Out and I'm looking at the arcade like, how much longer is this going to be around? You know, because... Pretty, we're going to get to the point, you know, that they can do this or even better at home. And then why are people going to come to, to 
come to the arcade. Yeah. So, you know, that's why Williams switches over to home. Uh, it gets rid of pinball, it switches over, then switches over to, to just making console games until, uh, you know, until it uh, goes away. But but I think they left the con- the arcade, Midway left the arcade market in 2001. Mm-hmm. So it didn't stay, hang around that much longer after pinball, two years. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, that that's just scratching the surface of this book. We, we touched briefly on Williams, Bally, and Midway. And it's just, it's such a fantastic history. And, and the I love the uh, inclusion of some uh, design documents, sketches, uh, historical photos, pictures from behind the scenes at the offices. I actually... Um, I, I kept reading it, and then when I'd get a hint of where like something used to be, I'd Google it, and I'd be like, "Where, where is that that building?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's it's a really boring warehouse, like 20 minutes from me. I should drive by it." <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's just it's such a fantastic book, and for someone like me who's such a steeped in Sega, like to the point where it's almost the only uh, company I play games from. Um, it's it's really exciting to read through this book and just be kind of surprised by the the twists and turns of the company because it's it's new to me and being uh, such a big pinball fan Sega doesn't really scratch that itch because they haven't really done yeah. much um, and so yeah, the, bef- these books mm-hmm. no, no no go ahead no go ahead oh, I was just gonna say well, we, no, we... <laughs> there you go you go <laughs> okay uh, we do have some questions from the audience. Uh, so before we get into those, um, were there any, uh, final words that you wanted to say, uh, about your time, uh, studying the history, doing the interviews? Um, I know for you, uh, interviewing people before they pass is very important. Was, was there anyone in this book who, uh, has since passed that you, you talked to during the well, creation of it? Yeah, Barry Ausler, uh, the creator of Gorgar, like I said, he passed away um, something like eight months after I spoke to him. Wow. Um, so some of them, like I like, I would love to have been able to speak to Norm Clark. He passed away several years ago. Steve Kordek passed away several years ago. I did get to speak to Mike Stroll. Mike Stroll is, is right now, I think he's 81. Uh, do you know the? It's in the book that uh, incredible art that Python Angelou did of Joust, and mm. like it's a, a poster that that's the the knight on the ostrich on like on a cliff overlooking like a sunset. Yeah, that original art, that actual poster. Everybody like people. Uh, I've seen people ask, you know, what whatever happened to that? You know, because at times they were going to have a, a flyer for that. At the trade shows, just a flyer of the marquee, your typical standard, standard thing. And Python Angel said, no, he wanted to do something more special. So he created that art and they gave him like a mini poster. That's like well, the original painting that he did is hanging in is Mike Stroll's daughter's living room. Oh, my God. It's still, it's still around, you know. That's and, insane. Um, yeah. And so um, I, I, he, I, I was afraid, you know, that he had passed because, you know, I hadn't heard or seen anything that he, any interviews or anything he had done. I was able to get in contact to him, with him and spoke to him several times. Um, and, you know, he was head of, of Williams during its heyday. You uh-huh. know, in the, 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 he was there from the transition of, from electromechanical to solid state pinball. He was there and oversaw its the, the creation of its video game division. 
Uh-huh. You know, he was there all the way to the mid eighties. And so it was vital, you know, I mean, he had done some interviews in the eighties, but I hadn't seen, hadn't seen any recent interviews. At least that answered the questions that I wanted to ask him. So I'm very happy to have spoken to him, but, um, you know, uh, Barry Ausler, I, I was very, that, I think Barry Ausler is probably the most, most, to me personally, it was my favorite interview because Gorgar is my favorite pinball game of all time. Mm, I just love cool. Gorgar. I just love it. And to be able to speak to the guy who made it. Yeah. And, you know, talk to him and tell him, you know, how much I loved it. My brother loves Joust, absolutely loves Joust. And, um, and I, when I spoke to, to, uh, to the creator of Joust, <laughs> and I told him my brother, uh, my brother really, really loves Joust, and he said, "Oh, thank you." Told you know, my brother was like, "Oh my god," you know, but it was really uh, uh, to me personally, it was um, you know John Newcomer, uh, the guy who made Joust. It was really, really, uh, really special for me to be able to speak to Joust. And then when he passed away, you know, that yeah. was just like, oh my god. So, but uh, but yeah, like these, this book. Is like I write these these books specifically about these topics because, first of all, like Sega's American business, I grew up with that. Sega's arcade business, I grew up with that. Nintendo's arcade business, I grew up with, and Williams pinball, you know, and and video game business, I grew up with. I played Joust and Robotron and Defender and Stargate in the arcades, and I played Black Knight and I played Gorgar in the arcades back when they came out, and I just I loved this company, and so you know. That that's the fuel that gets me to write these books, but also the fact that like, these stories haven't been told, you know. So so, and there are still companies that are arcade companies that I grew up with, uh, you know, like Universal. I mean, I love Mousetrap, I love Mister Do, yeah, uh, uh, Ladybug, and, and that the, their com- their story hasn't been told, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know. But and the, and these are companies like these people are, are getting, you know, they're up there in age. Like I said, a lot of the people that I spoke to, I mean. Jarvis, I think, is in his, his mid to late sixties, right? Demar as well. Um, who else? Some of them are a bit younger. Like uh, George Gomez is young. I mean, I spoke to, to Gary Stern. Gary Stern's in his mid seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these these are people that that their story has to has to be told. Absolutely. Uh, Gary Stern was very happy that I was doing this book um, because he he was very happy to see you know. The, the history of the company and his father would, was so heavily involved in. Um, and, and that made me feel, you know, that made me feel very good. So, so I'm, that's, I'm, awesome. I'm, that's, that's the satisfaction. And that's the satisfaction that I get. I mean, the book, it's a one copy. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it makes me, it's the fact that the story's out there, you know, other people are going to build on it. Other people are going to add more to it. That's great. Right. That's what you're supposed to do. But I'm happy to have been able to, to tell these stories and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. I mean, this book is the largest of all the books I've written. It is. Uh, I had a 200,000 word count and I went 8,000 words over it. Yeah, it's Thick. by far the biggest one. It's just, and I had to leave stuff out. I had yeah. to leave stuff out. I mean, there were games that I wanted to, uh, to include and I couldn't because I just didn't have the word count. But we're talking from 1947 to 2001, we're talking... 54 years, what, 54 years mm-hmm. of history. That's just, it's an insane amount to cover. And there's just so much, you know, I know. To, and to include. So I tried I, to include everything I could. I feel I say this every time, but like, thank you for your service of uh, covering these because, <laughs> yeah. you know, often you're the only source 
for a lot of the information that comes out of these books. And it's just, it's, I, I was just uh, a few weeks ago, we did a, a podcast talking about the Jurassic Park Sega Genesis game. I was, you know, doing some internet research. Then I was like, I need, of course, I always need to, uh, you know, turn to the book. And you were putting a lot of the, the little elements I was finding online into a cohesive narrative where a lot of the things that didn't really make sense to me suddenly made sense. And in other cases, you would uh, kind of debunk a few things like, um, not to turn this into Jurassic Park, but you were they talked about the development of the Sega CD version and the development of the, the Genesis one. And online, a lot of people were getting their wires crossed and like talking about the yeah. Genesis game, but referring to development stories from the Sega CD. And so it was just really helpful just from a research purpose for me to like have your book both put it in a uh, a narrative and also to I, I not to debunk but to just set the record straight a lot of the times yeah i mean it that's why all these books have a bibliography and all these books have an index mm-hmm. i mean i it takes it took me two weeks to do the index of the williams book and and it was the most tedious boring thing i've ever done but it was worth it because anyone who uses that book, it's going to be incredibly useful to finding things quickly. I, I want, I mean, that's the whole goal, right? Instead of you having to scour the internet and watch a dozen interviews and read 15 right. to 20 different articles, you can get all that information in one place, but you have the references to each one of those in case you want to see, you know, those individual sources. Mm. And, and that's, that's the point of the research to try and give people easy access because you don't have maybe you don't have time to go and and you know spend hours looking online you know i we i do it so you don't have to but that's why i always include the bibliography and the the, with each of these books so that in case you do want to see those sources Mm -hmm. you know uh you're able to do so and and i'll say too as a longtime reader of yours that you do a, a excellent job laying out the story without it feeling like i'm reading a research paper or a wikipedia entry there's still a little bit of your personality in there, but your personality is sort of a, and hey, isn't this cool that this connects to this? And I might as well take you down a little detour to teach you about this because it relates to that. And um, I mean, just talking to you now, your voice now is the voice in the book and it's it's much preferred to, uh, you know, some other, I won't, you know, name names, but some other writers I've read where they, they either go in this game was just a piece of shit. I don't know why I'm talking about it. Like they'll they'll get a little too <laughs> opinion well, based or. Uh... I think that like I had some criticism in the Sega Arcade book. Somebody told me that I included Flicky mm-hmm. simply because I could, and I'm like, well, first of all, yeah, I could, and so why not? <laughs> Second of all, I like Flicky, so yes, I'm going to talk about Flicky. Third of all, if you read the story of Flicky, you'll know that if it hadn't been for the uh, knowledge and experience that Yoji Ishii got making Flicky, there wouldn't have been the side-scrolling at the speed it was in Sonic the Hedgehog. Right. So you don't have Sonic the Hedgehog without Flicky. So yeah. Flicky, whether a person has a personal preference for it or not, Flicky is a game of historical importance. Yeah. You know? Um, so my my opinion is, like, Fantasia, the, the playing at the next level book includes Fantasia. Fantasia, the game itself, is a piece of garbage. But the story behind it is a, is amazing. And so that story deserves to be told. Like every game has a story to be told. If it's crap, I want to know why it's crap. 
I want to know what happened. If it's amazing, I want to know why it's amazing. So, so people are like, oh, you shouldn't include that game because that game sucks. Well, first of all, that's subjective. Second of right. all, whether a game sucks or not doesn't make it doesn't mean it's without historical merit. You know? Right. And that's why, like, and also I tried if the first two books used parenthetical citations, and then I was like, that's too research paper like, and so that's why I switched to uh, um, endnotes. Mm-hmm. To try and and make the you know to keep the fluid so it, so it doesn't seem you know I want it to be a book that can be I want my books to be able to to be enjoyable by people regardless of their their level their knowledge level of the subject I want yeah. someone who's a fan of, of Bally Midway to be able to Williams Bally Midway to be able to jump right in and read it and I want someone who's like oh what is that I've never seen that before be able to read the book and not have to have a knowledge of of APA or MLA or any of this research right. uh, uh, jargon and stuff and that's why I decided I want take away the parenthetical citations to make it less intrusive and keep the flow of the narrative better. And um, I think it, I think it's worked well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would not speak ill of Flicky because I think the world record holder like lives within spitting distance of me here. So really? yeah, yeah. They're, they're, um, he uh, knows where you live. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, w- I won't say anything, um, but uh, we do have some people in the chat saying things. We have a question here from uh, Play History, they say, what was the weirdest source you had to access for this book? So I guess not just not saying that a, a person you interviewed was weird, but maybe just what is maybe an obscure or strange source that you found for information? Um, oh, I had some obscure sources. For example, um, I reference, I, didn't, I don't have it, it's, it's on my bookcase in the other room, but I have a copy of Roger Sharp's book, Pinball. Mm-hmm. If you've seen the movie, the movie that came up about him recently, uh, Pinball, uh, about Roger Sharp. I have um, not. I wrote intend a book. to. Oh, I saw it. I went to I went to Dragon Con in Atlanta a, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw it on the flight back, and it was excellent. Um, and uh, so I, I spoke to Roger Sharp extensively for this book. Wonderful man. Incredibly knowledgeable. Great recall. Extremely friendly, generous answered all my questions and I actually got a copy of his book. And, um, and the reason why I got a copy of his book is because he wrote that book in 1975. He interviewed Sam Ginsburg of Chicago coin. He interviewed Sam Stern. He interviewed Harry Williams, all these guys who are long dead. He interviewed all of them and his, he had lots of information and I wanted the book. I go on eBay cause the book's been out of print for like four decades uh, uh, at least four decades. I go on eBay and I find a copy from a Goodwill that's selling it. Buy it now for seventy five dollars. Mm. And I'm thinking, damn, that's that's seventy five dollars for a book. It turns out that that book I've seen that book go on eBay has been sold, completed auctions for upwards of two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. So I snatched it up uh, and got it was in excellent condition. And so uh, that that was a I didn't think I would ever have to buy a book that was almost as old as I am, you know, to source. Uh, but um, I was very happy to, to get a copy of that. I would like to go to Pitbull Expo so he could sign it for me. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, the thing about, oh, I had to also access a lot of um, patents and stuff from the 1930s, 1940s, because a lot of the early years of Pinball, a lot of the stories of like, Harry Williams invented the tilt. No, he didn't. There, there are, are machines as early as 1906, that had tilting mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this, like he did this, he this guy did that, this guy invented this. You have to look to patents and you have to look to 
contemporaneous sources from the 1920s and the 1930s. And so that was a, that was a, a, a that took a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, another question we have here from Play History. Uh, did you hear any anecdotes or stories about uh, the Williams people, like maybe what they did in their free time or how they, the employee culture maybe? Did you get any sense of that? Uh, the employee culture from what I, from what they told me, because, you know, uh, as always with any company, there are going to be people who are going to try and, you know, protect the image or people who protect other people, things like that. Everything was really, uh, um, there weren't any really problems with finding anything until the, uh, until after the Bally merger. That kind of caused uh, a rift because like, uh, some people from Bally told me that, you know, they, they were kind of like separate from the Midway guys. And also, uh, at one point, Neil Nicastro, the, the, the guy in charge, basically like puts a, a prize, like, you know, whoever gets a design done, you know, fastest and has the best design will get an award. And so the, that significantly changed the culture. It used to be that you would have guys coming in and out of each other's office bouncing ideas off of each other and everything and say, oh, that's really cool. You should put that in your game, you know, and, and things like the, like that. And like when Pinbot came out um, and they were doing the music, mm-hmm. Steve Jar- uh, uh, Eugene Jarvis and, and Steve Ritchie came in and contributed significantly to like getting the music. You know, they just gave opinions, you know, um, and, and, and then they would leave. And, and you had that kind of thing. They would come in, what you doing? What you working on? Oh, and then they would give opinions, right? Uh, um and so that changed when Nicastro implemented that rule. Now everybody like broke into little teams, closed their doors and, and closed the shades because you didn't want anybody else to know what you were working on because you were going for that, that bonus, you know, yeah. that significantly uh, changed the culture hmm. within. But up until that point, you know, uh, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, it was like, and Kordak was that kind of guy. Kordak would come in, you know, and, and, and just what you're working on. And he would give suggestions and give ideas you know, and and, um, and that changed significantly yeah. when that program was implemented. But that that you know, pinball is a is not a very big industry. Uh, they, a lot of them talked about how there were restaurants or a restaurant that they would go to in the uh, in Chicago that guys from Bally would go to, guys from Gottlieb, guys from from Williams would go to. And the older guys sat in a section, they call that the dinosaur section. Uh-huh. But you had guys from Gottlieb sitting there talking with guys from Williams and having lunch. You know, there wasn't that intercompany rivalry animosity. Right. It was, uh, they were pinball guys. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to find out what some of those restaurants were. I'm sure I've probably been to some of them. Um, so this book, people can get it uh, at... Uh, Amazon, they can get it at the McFarland website. Um, what what is your preferred method of people buying it? What's what's best for you? Either way, either yeah. way, as long as they buy one, buy one, buy ten. Right, right. They can leave <laughs> now, uh, um, reviews though on Amazon, which makes yes, that yes, stand out. Yeah, yeah. That's um. I, so that's why I would refer you to the Amazon site because that way, if you you know you can leave a review. Um, the like the, the Amazon took away the ability to to reply to reviews. So somebody left a review for the for the Sega Arcade Revolution where the person demonstrated that they have absolutely no idea how research works. 
and they criticized it because like, oh, because I didn't have any new content. For example, I just took, I think it was the Game Ground interview that I took that in there. I had that interview on my website. And I just took it off my website and put it in the book. Like if you go back, first of all, the person translated the interview, translated it for the book. And if you go and look at the interview on the website, it says very clearly that that is an interview originally published in the book. <laughs> so it comes out in the big fir- book first. And after the book was published, because that was part of the deal with the translator, yeah. that after the book comes out, six months after the book comes out, I would publish the art, the interview on as an excerpt from the book on the website with credit to him as the translator. Right. You know? and so the person demonstrated they have absolutely no idea. You know, oh, it just like he just took information from all these different sources and just put them all together. Like that's research. <laughs> that's how you, you write know? a book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's basically what you do. You know, you oh, compile oh sources and talk to people and things. And um, but uh, but yeah, the the reviews do help a lot and help it push it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes more visible. Kindle version, print version, either one. Um, I do think it's a uh, a book that uh, people will enjoy. Also, that you know. Uh, that's why I include the index. You want to reference something really quickly. If you want to do any writing of your own on the subject, hopefully the book will serve as a good reference for you. Right. Um, that's I do that. You know, I write the books for people to read and enjoy, but also to serve as reference text so that anyone who wants to do research has them. And that's why I include, like I said, I include bibliographies and indexes in them so that people to make the the research as. Uh, as painless as possible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I, I use it all the time when we're doing podcasts. I always have to check and see if something's been cited, and I always find cool little nuggets of info. So, yeah, these, I mean, y- your books are definitely must-own. Uh, do you have uh, any indication of what your next project is uh, or what you're looking to talk about next? Well, I have several books, several topics in mind. I'm currently working on a book, a comprehensive history of the game gear that's going to be a little bit different in format that it's going to be more of a history slash compendium uh not quite a coffee table book but definitely one you could put on your coffee table <laughs> but it will have it does have it's about like I, uh we were talking about earlier it's about 85 percent done um it has comprehensive history of the develop design development and release of the game gear in japan its release and and effect in in the United in North America, in Europe, in South America, an extensive history of the Game Gear's release in South America and in Australia as well. And I spoke to people from Sega of America, people from Sega Europe, people from Ozisoft in Australia, people from Tech Toy, uh, lots of documents, uh, Japanese interviews that have never been translated before. Um, it will definitely be the most comprehensive thing written about the Game Gear today. This is just a question of working out, you know, where Sega stands with, uh, uh, with you know, do they want to be involved, not be involved. But uh, that's the project that I'm working on right now. Um, I have a couple of ideas that I want to do. Maybe another pinball book. I have some ideas. I've been talking to some people, but it all depends on, you know, because you can't write, a, as, as this book taught me, I was able to do a lot of it over the phone and through email, but you really got to go to Chicago to write a pinball book. You know, Absolutely. Because it's just so much more. I have, writing this book taught me, like, I mean, I would not have been able to fit a lot of it. I, like I said, I, I went 8,000 words over the word count with this, and my publisher was wanted to kill me. But it taught me, like, yeah, I would probably get a much richer and deeper sense if I'm actually there. So um, that's, but that's, you know, those are plans after I get the game beer book out the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come to Chicago. We have pinball. We have video games. We have 
over 900 <laughs> arcade games at Galloping Ghost. So, uh, oh, that's, that's, yeah. that's on my bucket list. Yeah, it is a mecca. We actually just did a, a hangout there a, a week or two ago. Um, I saw. And it was it was so much fun. There were so many people who were within like, you know, three, four hour drive. Um, and amazingly, they, they came out. It was their first time there and they were just floored. Uh, I, I intentionally did not have a any plans because I knew when people walk in through the door, they can find more than enough fun on their own. But um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the years may tick by, but like arcade games and pinball machines, they still have that draw. It's like something, I don't know, it's it's something built into us. There's something, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's... Yeah, I, I teach I teach a college course on introduction to video game studies. Mm-hmm. And this week we were talking about one of the, this is a class where you're, you, you have take no tests. You, we discuss the video game industry from its inception the crash uh, in the in 83. We talk about the Japanese industry. We talk about the role of women and minorities in game development, uh, Jerry Lawson and others. We talk about the uh, consoles and arcades. And we I break up the history through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and the current, you know, after the millennium. And so they have to, we, we look at this right now, we're talking about games from the 70s. And so what you do is you have to pick a game from the 70s, computer, console, arcade, and you have to play it and you have to analyze it. So mm-hmm. basically... There, you know, it's like I tell my students, you tell your family, they say, hey, stop playing video games. Cam, hey, you know, this is classroom I'm studying. You know? <laughs> uh, and this week we were talking about like the one of the things they have to do is they have to watch a documentary on the arcade industry from uh, you know, up through the crash. And they have to comment on, they have to write an analysis, you know, have uh, or answer a, pers- a retrospective uh, perspective. They give their perspective on the arcades. Have you ever played an arcade game? I have to actually ask this because my students, you know, they were I, my students were not born were born after nine eleven. Wow, you know, so they're eighteen, nineteen years old. So I have to legitimately ask them: Have you ever played an arcade game? If so, where you know what what games did you play? And like, if not, which ones would you like to play? Which games in the documentary looked interesting to you? So we're talking about that now. And one of the things we were talking about this week is the fact that that even though the same way we can watch Netflix and we can watch Hulu and Disney Plus, people still go to the movies, mm-hmm. right? You can play your Xbox and PlayStation, but it will never have the feel of an arcade. Absolutely. Just the combination of smell, sight, sound, the low lighting, you know, you're talking with your friends about how to beat this boss or how to pass this stage. It's just that that was the social hub in the 70s and the 80s for teenagers. And that environment that has never been recreated in the home. And so it's just something about it that. If you've been to an arcade, especially back in those days, you walk back in an arcade and it's like, oh, I'm home, you know? It's just, it just all comes flooding back to you when you hear those sounds and the, and just the smell of, you know, the smell of the carpet combined with the wood of the machines and mm-hmm. all that. It's just, it's, it's intoxicating. And, and so I, I'm trying to explain this to these 18 and 19 year olds who are looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And it's kind of like, <laughs> ah, you have to be there. You know, old man yells at cloud type of thing. But, uh, but it's true. Like you said, it's just, you know, it, it's, it just keeps, there's something about it that you cannot recreate and it keeps drawing you back. Yeah. We, we finished the night playing six player X-Men. I've never done that before with with five other people. And it was, it was a trip. I was, I I took the very, the one furthest to the side next to the monitor because I knew a lot of people wanted a better experience. I can play X-Men there whenever I want. I'm 10 minutes away, but yeah, it was, it was a real trip. Um, what was the documentary that your your students were watching? It was the Icons G four Icons episode on arcade. Okay. 
it's only 22 minutes long and it gives yeah. them a good enough overview that they can opine on it but uh but I had to explain what G4 was. Oh, no. And then you had, <laughs> had to, explain to explain what you know, cable that, TV was, too, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like, wow. They, like, like I said, they're 18, 19 years old. And so I legitimately have to ask, have you ever been in an arcade? Because, like, in port, in the States, like, my brother lives in, a, in Marietta, Georgia. He lives, like, five minutes away from a, an arcade. One mm-hmm. of those that you go in, pay $10, and you can play. They're on free, free play all day. Here in Puerto Rico, we don't have that. You know, there's a Dave and Buster's. It's on, like, it's about, uh, from where I teach, it's about an hour and a half away. You know, the, I have not, I think I have a better chance of capturing a live Sasquatch than I do of seeing an arcade game in the wild here. Mm. You know, so these students have never seen, some of them are like, what is this arcade you speak of? You know, they've never seen <laughs> it. So I have to explain it, show them. And I have to explain literally what the marquee is, what the bezel is. I had to explain what dedicated cabs versus cap conversion kits because mm. they have they they, they 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 this is all alien to them, you know. It, it would be like like you know, uh, uh, trying you know to explain someone trying to explain the telegraph, you know. <laughs> oh, I was going to say and, like and, trying and, to explain Fortnite to me because that's pretty much <laughs> on the inverse. Well, that's I where I Fortnite, am. My kids play Fortnite, and I look at that, and all I, I tell my daughter, you know that for a game historian, this game, for a game preservationist, this game is a freaking nightmare. Yeah. You know, this is 20 years from now, when you're in your, your late 30s, your early 40s, and you get nostalgic, you want to play some Fortnite, it's going to be a real pain in the butt to play the version of Fortnite you want to play. Right. You know, because of all the updates, patches, all the licensing, the crossovers, everything, you know, if they don't pay for those licenses, and how many licenses does Fortnite have, how do you get all that back? You know, twenty years from now, it's, it's going to be a nightmare to preserve you won't. that game. <laughs> you never will. Oh my gosh! Well, you know, uh, Ken, you are a uh, a treasure when it comes to uh, video game. I guess preservation coverage. Um, it's just, it's always a delight talking with you. The game or the game? Well, the the book about games is from Pinballs Two Pixels in Arcade History. Of Williams Valley Midway. Hey, we both. If yeah, we both have a copy. Look at that. So more than one person has one. You were saying one person, but uh, but the one yeah. person it's you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can check that out. Uh, uh, you can check search McFarland Press. You can also find it on Amazon, and of course, Sega16.com is the website. Uh, Ken, again, thank you so much for coming on and talking. Thank you very much for having. I, Really am looking forward to your next book, and hopefully we can have you on uh, once that drops, or just whenever. It's always fun to chat. Um, so, yeah, and you're on uh, X, Twitter as well. People can find you there. Um, so any other social media sites you want to uh, drop? Uh, yeah, No, I really... Um... We Sega 16 has a Facebook page as well, but that's really about it. I'm still not ticking them talks or snapping those chats. I'm not really a, a social media beyond. I'm on um, X because of, you know that's where a lot of that's for the news and stuff, and a lot of people in the game industry are there. Um, but but yeah, that's really a, uh, my social media presence. All right, but well, you can also contact me through the using the contact form through uh, Sega 16. Uh, at any time, so I will get back to you as quickly as I can. Yeah, email or self-addressed stamped envelope too. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Well, thank you so much, Ken. Have a great night. Thank you for chatting. Thank you. And you we'll be in touch. 
And thank you for, to everyone for listening and watching, too. And we will be back, uh, I believe, next month. I have a wacky episode planned. We're going to be going through every American Sega Pico game, and we're going to be specifically oh, wow. reviewing yeah, the, um, the last page, the drawing page. And so we're going to figure out which American Pico pay- game has the best uh, 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 art... Um, I guess <laughs> it's it's going to be weird, but it's just something I wanted to do. Uh, and a friend of mine is going to be on, Steve Lakowitz, a video game composer. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the projects he has coming up as well. So not a, not enough Pico love out there. No, well, the, all the Pico love is me. I'm 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 the only person <laughs> in the world who thinks about the Pico almost every day. Uh, it's sitting over here next to me. I always look at it, but. Um, Yeah, so we'll see you on the next episode in October, and we'll hopefully see Ken uh, maybe next year. So um, uh, until then, take care, and we'll see you next time.